Hello and welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco. In today's episode, we have a chat with Matt Bowie. Matt is a PhD student at the University of Adelaide, studying sustainability in the coffee market. Our chat covers topics like consumer choice and behavioural change in consumer markets, and how these things can be mediated to bring about conservation outcomes. Matt Bowie, welcome to the Biology Society podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm glad we've finally gotten here. It's been a long time coming. We've done it. And we're going to be covering some new ground, some stuff that I've been thinking about for a long time. Mm -hmm. But first, who are you and what do you do? I am known by Bowie by pretty much everybody. And I'm currently, one of many things I'm doing is my PhD, looking at sustainable coffee and consumer behaviour change. For the background reading that I did for this, I came across a, across a quote that got me thinking a lot, and I'm going to read the quote mm-hmm. now. Fortunately, I don't remember the author, but the quote goes, an entire generation of scientists has now been trained to describe in ever greater and more dismal detail the death of the ocean. And as someone who studies conservation biology, this got me thinking that we can study systems and gain better and better understandings of how they work or don't work how they're structured and how they're degrading mm-hmm. but this is only a small piece of the picture and that we could be at risk of studying things to extinction and i'm wondering yeah what are your thoughts on the other pieces to this puzzle i think if we're looking at this from a conservation perspective you can think of conservation as a cake you're trying to make and biology and science is the flour in that cake you can't make a really delicious cake with just some awesome flour you need other things Mm. to make conservation happen i think conservation at its root it just requires working with people and communities and have having positive change in those people's and communities actions what they choose to do how they choose to live the things they choose to buy and consume to then have that positive drive to support biodiversity conservation. Yeah, one of the things that I'm certainly realising is that conservation inherently is interdisciplinary, that there are, we're drawing from the social sciences, the biological sciences, and one of the things that these papers that you sent me were really highlighting is that we need to market conservation and incorporate marketing principles into conservation. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about conservation marketing and what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess this is the, some of those papers are some of like the original ones I read right back in the start of my PhD when I was banging my head against a brick wall going, why am I doing a PhD? Um, and I was like, this, 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 this is me. This is that issue I've been having with conservation science is that it's just not, enough to achieve what it's trying to do and you need to actually work with people from different backgrounds and disciplines like social sciences marketing economics everything effectively but how can you not just talk about we should work with social scientists or someone should do this but i think Mm -hmm. we actually as conservation scientists or 
to scientists and biologists. Practitioners. Practitioners, not just scientists, you know, environmentalists. You need to be willing to sometimes, and I do this a lot, cold turkey, call up people, Facebook message them, I Instagram DM people randomly. I'm probably sometimes to my own detriment a bit too honest and open uh, about some things on, say, social media. But that gets some people talking and I get, pre- maybe not maybe not directly back in an open sense, but I get people contact me and going unofficially, duh, duh, duh. Mm. and that opens the doorway to then start working with people. And so what kind of collaborations are you talking about? Well, from my personal perspective, for my PhD, I spent a long time going, okay, I want to do conservation marketing. And at the time, I was, I was using the term social marketing, and I'll, I'll circle back to that. But okay, I was like, okay, who in my department of biological sciences, whatever we're called, does this? Found that one. Okay, let's go to the geography department, because you know, mm. that's a bit, bit more of my background. I came from a bit more geography, and I went to them. And now I'm like, yeah, that's kind of interesting, but you should go talk to the econo- like the economist people. Okay, I went to talk to them, went to the business school, went to the marketing people. And I ended up, I think, over a period of 12 months exhausting every possible contact that might be interested within my university and it didn't get me what I wanted Mm. now after a lot of personal frustrations in the PhD world and I guess that's always how it is I have research collaborations with um, social marketing researcher at Griffith University in the business school so that's in Queensland Australia with uh, other researchers at the University of Oxford in the UK, I'd say regularly but infrequently catch up with uh, a guy that does economics here at our University of Adelaide, and he's looking at social and sustainable coffee from the economic and social mm-hmm. standpoint. So we're very similar, but it's still challenging to have those relationships with people from very different mm. backgrounds of where they've come from, where they're learning, and just from the research perspective, actually making these collaborations and partnerships yeah. work when you're in very different fields. Success in one field is not necessarily measured as being productive in the other field. Mm. But I think there's increasing, increasing recognition and people doing this kind of stuff and people reaching out and people making it work. There are challenges from the sort of academic standpoint, but for the conservation world... I'm very positive about the future and where it's going. So, I guess my thoughts on that, uh, I don't know too much about the academic world, but Mm. it definitely seems to me that one of the unintended consequences of increasing specialization is that people become pigeonholed in their departments. (laughs) And I feel like this is what you're describing, is that, you know, at one point in time, we had polymaths that knew a lot about lots of subjects but with our depth of knowledge and our, you know, the lasers focus so tight that people know a whole lot about one really specific thing. And it sounds to me like at the moment what we need is to synthesize several disciplines and fields into a coherent framework where we're achieving conservation outcomes through economics and marketing. But I actually
actually don't think you answered my question. What exactly is conservation marketing? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to miss say this. So there's actually a conservation marketing like official definition working group. They've come up with a bit of a working give, definition. Give me Bowie's definition. <laughs> I'm happy with that. My definition it's taking the tools and strategies from the commercial marketing world and using them to achieve social good and to achieve actual conservation outcomes. So it's using those learnings that have been honed into selling Coca-Cola or mm-hmm. cigarettes or fast food and that are really good learnings. You know, that people yeah. really understand how to make people and it buy things and do things. And, and it, it works. works. <laughs> right? It works, yeah. obviously. How do you take those? And this is what I think that is what social marketing is, is how do you take that world and do it for socially good things? Like how do you get people to quit smoking? How do you get people to eat more fruits and vegetables? How do you get people to, for the conservation point, stop hunting and eating bushmeat? How do you get people to, you know, know. boycott oil palm or something like that? It's, so it's being applied in this conservation realm and being termed conservation marketing. That's sort of a broadly a, a new tool in our little toolkit yeah, of and conservation. This is what you're talking about. This is the, ice, the icing on the cake. You know, we've got the foundation, which is our scientific understanding of yeah. the ecological system. Yeah. And then there are these other components. Yeah. It's not even icing. I think, I think the... It's more like eggs, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is just another ingredient to that conservation yeah. cake, right? It's not, it's not a silver bullet. It's just another ingredient that we need to put mm-hmm. in. It's like you have this vision of this. You have this you know, dream of this amazing, delicious dessert that you've called a cake, and you're trying to make it, and you think, I think it has flour. Yeah. And for the past 50 years, we've been figuring out how to make some really good flour. Yeah. Someone else has been making some really good eggs. Someone else has been <laughs> refining how to make sugar. And we now need to find those people and bring them together to yeah. make, make conservation actually happen and apply those things. So before we started recording, um, I expressed a philosophical disinclination, you might say, to the idea of, I don't know, using the consumerist framework to sell conservation. Is this a hurdle that you've encountered from other biologists or people in this field? <clears throat> yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's a hurdle. I haven't personally faced it as directly as that it's not like i'm having people come up to me going you're the devil using (laughs) you know marketing but it is something that is talked about in this people trying to use this marketing for conservation yeah in a way it is a form of social engineering yeah but okay that's that's one of those things i missed out in that definition i guess or maybe it's not the definition but this sort of conservation marketing and sort of behavior change stuff it isn't it isn't misleading people it's not no. it's not making people do something that they didn't want to do yeah it's just and it's not you know it's not being sleazy it's not misleading it's it's i guess it's just you know you're shining a light on something because we're exposed to so many messages yeah for More the non-conservation ever. like that would be detrimental to conservation mm-hmm. that we need to have at least one you know percent of that you know yeah. to start 
turning the tides a bit. Yeah. I think maybe it would be helpful if we have an example of conservation marketing in action. Can you think of a good one? There are so many. I'm trying to have my succinctly do one. It can be applied to so many little things. One I even just learnt of today. I believe it's Zoos Victoria has this sort of, I don't know if they call it conservation marketing, but it effectively is, where they're trying to reduce the amount of balloons that end up in the environment because they're a big killer of birds, I think. And and the most frivolous thing, like (laughs) balloons. (laughs) Yeah. But look, they're part of our culture, right? Apparently. And culture changes through time. So people invented balloons at some point in the past. It became a part of parties and it's, it's a part of our culture. It's part of your childhood, you know, in Australia, other parts of the world where there's balloons and it's festive and it's really fun. Some of those balloons float away. Yeah. And sometimes you purposely let those balloons float away or just those balloons are now plastic pollution. Yeah. But the, anyway, we'll circle back. So Zoos Victoria had this thing where they're trying to have businesses and people recognize this as an issue. Because most people wouldn't even have that on their minds that that balloon is certainly not detrimental to it's going to kill a bird. Maybe it's not what they're thinking when their child just accidentally lets the balloon go. So they have this program where they're trying to have people blow bubbles, like just you know, have a little yeah bubble and blow well, bubbles, dish, dishwashing soap bubbles, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Blow bubbles instead of blowing a balloon. I think they broke the Guinness World Record for having the most number of people yeah. blowing bubbles at once in a stadium. I'm Somewhere. I don't know the details of it. That literally, it can be applied to so many things. Like I said, it can be applied to reduce hunting of endangered species in the forests of Borneo. Mm. And maybe this is a, you know, it's, I think some of your previous speakers talked about so the pangolin trade or something like that. Yeah. And it's, you know, pangolins are endangered, but they're also a traditional meat in some cultures. And we're not trying to, we're not trying to say, hey, you people over there of culture X stop doing the thing you've done for centuries. We're saying, hey, people that live in the city and believe that pangolins can cure cancer or give you a yeah. good night sex or something like that, you know, it's, uh, you know, Questionable. look, <laughs> can you try something else? Yeah. And, you know, for us maybe in Australia, it's like, you're not, it, say it could be for meat consumption, it's way more environmentally friendly to be vegetarian. Or to eat kangaroos. Or to eat kangaroos. Exactly. You don't need to you don't need to stop eating meat. It's just Certainly. eat less meat. Change your preferences. Yeah, or, or you eat chicken instead of beef or any beef on you know special occasions yeah. or something like that. And it's not that's 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 the finer details of conservation marketing is coming up with those mm. understandings of what is palatable to people. Because it's not palatable if you go around criminalizing everybody mm-hmm. for eating meat or criminalizing people that it's part of their culture to do something it's just and one of the things that i'm really learning recently is that it's not enough to just feed people information no you know and what you're talking about is actively engaging with people Mm -hmm. you know and this is like the you know something as trivial as blowing bubbles yeah but the the message behind that is this is conservation marketing correct yeah Yeah, okay, cool. There was one other quote in that same paper that I'm going to read as well. Conservation is primarily not about biology, but about people and the choices they make. Whether that choice is not inflating that balloon or not engaging in the pangolin trade, 
how do we apply some of the more economic principles, you know, consumer choice, to conservation? And I feel like this is going to open up a whole can of worms here, so let's just go for it. Yeah, I think we've started to touch on it already, and this is this is one of the things that drove me towards what I'm doing with, you know, I'm, I'm applying this to just specifically the coffee industry. And so, you know, okay, let's just, let's take my little example. In the coffee industry, coffee is a rainforest tree naturally coming from Africa. There's, I don't know, something like over a hundred species. But through the movement of people and cultures over centuries, two main species... Robusta and Arabica? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Got it. Got my plants. Um, these two have been sort of massively brought to the tropics of the world. So coffee can only survive in tropical conditions. Mm -hmm. And generally, so Arabica is basically, it's a shade shrub that occurs under the canopy of a rainforest. Understory yeah. species. Yeah. And so when you take that tree and move it to different rainforests it's kind of like an invasive species it does really well and it's good and people can you know grow it and make money off it but it doesn't it doesn't compromise the biodiversity of that region entirely you can still maintain 90% 100% 80% of the original biodiversity of that region but also the people growing and harvesting coffee can still do that while maintaining a rainforest. So it's completely dissimilar to something like palm oil, where you're yeah, clearly palm oil is completely destroying. Completely replacing it with a monoculture. So you're saying that you can actually have some semblance of biodiversity conservation and have a productive coffee industry. Yeah, and there's plenty of studies that say coffee production zones are even harboring more biodiversity than untouched, untouched virgin rainforests in some areas. Interesting. But the caveat to that is your production per unit area is lower than it could be if you did do that, cutting down the rainforest, having just a monoculture of coffee. And this is where Robusta is a variety species of coffee that was developed to be tolerant to direct sunlight and to more harsh conditions. Right. So it was selectively bred and is capable of surviving as a monoculture mm. without that rainforest canopy. So that is where we have the big problem in the coffee industry. And it's not just Robusta, so both are both. So Arabica can be in, it can cause deforestation and Robusta can be environmentally friendly. But I'm just speaking generally here. Mm -hmm. You have now Brazil and Vietnam as the two biggest production countries of coffee in the world. Vietnam? Vietnam. Those are very large disparity in size, Brazil and Vietnam. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> Vietnam as well is an interesting case. It's only in the last couple of years that it's even, it's skyrocketed up the, the sort of rankings. Interesting. Uh, I think the Philippines and Indonesia are up there as well. But you've got these two countries, and a lot of the production in those two countries, Brazil and Vietnam, I'm talking about here, are monoculture, mm. generally a robusta, and generally, Robusta is what goes into your instant coffee. Right. Generally. That does not do well for biodiversity or conservation. It's, you know, to, to maintain those plants, those trees, it requires watering. 
It requires fertilizer, it requires chemicals, herbicides, pesticides, all sorts of things. All those now pollutants that go along with any agricultural system are then like entering waterways, mm -hmm. you're destroying the waterway, you're destroying the rainforest, all sorts of issues there. But if we circle back, coffee has the potential mm. to be grown in conditions that still support biodiversity. So, so you can have, yeah, sorry, you go. So we've, got, so we've got two systems here. We've got one clear-cut monoculture and one high biodiversity industry. Now, when it comes to a consumer making a choice, how <laughs> do we create the, I'm going to use an industry term here, how do, we, how do we organize the choice architecture so that a consumer is more likely to choose the sustainable option over the non-sustainable option? Oh, there's the million dollar question that I'm trying to understand in my PhD, I guess. That's the consumer behavior change aspect. Right. But I just, want to, I just want to take one step back. Please. Those two systems we just described there are ends of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. You can have systems anywhere in between there. So you can mm -hmm. have just coffee with a, a sparse, you know, two species of canopy trees to provide enough shade to make the trees survive. So right. it can be on a spectrum. Yeah. You can have a perfectly amazing 99.9% as good as a virgin rainforest to 80% as good. And maybe that's enough. Yeah. It's definitely better than 0%. Well, right. Yeah. And then even those monocultures still do harbour some, some biodiversity. But for the choice architecture, the how do you get, how, how do consumers make these decisions? Mm -hmm. This is... This is why I chose coffee. So coffee is basically where this sort of idea was born. So thinking, people have probably heard about you know, the Rainforest Alliance, yeah. um, Fair Trade, Organic, UTZ uh, is UTZ another big one. And there's you know, Bird Friendly in America, Smithsonian Institute for Bird Friendly Coffee, Shade Grown Coffee. Well, there's all, there's, there are, God knows, hundreds of what they call certification yeah. verification schemes yeah. to provide you, the consumer with a level of confidence that this product was grown ethically sustainably for the, the benefit yeah for the benefit of you know paying people better not having child slavery in the system mm -hmm. preserving biodiversity you know, having bird habitat they each focus on different little aspects like i just said yeah. there but at their core, they each would have some degree of the three main pillars of sustainability, and that's economic, social, and environment. And you can't achieve sustainability without those three things. You can't just say something sustainable because it's environmentally sustainable. Mm -hmm. you've, got to, you've got to balance all three. You know, people need to make a living on those coffee farms mm -hmm. to pay for their children to go to school yeah. and to have a good level of life that everyone deserves. But I dare say a majority, if not all of them, would also like to see their rainforests live on. For sure. When given the option of starving or capturing a orangutan for the international wildlife trade, I myself, put in that same position, would probably choose the orangutan. Yeah, you need the orangutan. You, you, know, you put... It's, it's um, it's just the human psychology. You wanna you wanna preserve yourself and your your family, your community, and then if you know if you're in a situation where you've secured all those basic needs, then you can think about yeah, protecting 
in some ways, conservation is a, a luxury that we have the, oh, yeah, the liberty to. It's, it is our privilege. It is our privilege just living in the conditions we do in yeah. you know, wherever we are in the world to be able to think about conservation. And I think it is our obligation to then act on that, not just think about it, because there's that, this is coming to that choice architecture. How do you understand that difference between, oh yeah, I would buy, of course I wouldn't support palm oil, or of course I wouldn't buy coffee that causes deforestation. Mm. And then when, you know, Joanne needs to do her shopping on Monday and her pay hasn't come through because she was sick last week, She's going to buy the coffee that's $15 on sale instead of the one that's $40 mm -hmm. for you know, some specialty Rainforest Alliance fair trade organic certified coffee. Yeah. Or even just that coffee tastes better yeah. than that certified one. Mm. Sometimes I think that, you know, in the, in the West, we kind of export our biodiversity mm -hmm. impacts. Yeah, yeah. That we... we, we push them onto somewhere else yeah somewhere else somewhere where else it's not we don't yet. see it in our backyard yeah. so sometimes we do you know but but it's you where where i i don't like using these terms like west and the rest and yeah west was but, in quotes yeah so it's hard it's hard to it's hard to find another term but the yeah yeah you know what you mean sure sure so yeah we we are highly disconnected from the environment from a sort of just evolutionary or however you want to think about it you know religiously spiritual spiritually we are more and more disconnected from nature and people people need nature to survive so how can we how do you connect someone here in Adelaide or in say Boston in the US or London in the UK or Bogota in Colombia with mm -hmm what they're choosing to buy at the market, the supermarket, the grocer, how do they connect that decision mm. with the impact it's had where it was grown, how it was picked, how it was processed, packaged, delivered, yeah. shipped around the world. You know, there's, there's, there's things about like locally produced is better because it's got less food miles. On the flip side of that, maybe growing rice in Australia, in a desert, isn't as environmentally friendly as importing it from another country. And circling back, also, you want to give other people a job. Yeah. Like, if someone can sustain themselves in their community by growing rice and exporting it to Australia, then that, yeah, as long as they're not doing these impositions yeah. on biodiversity that yeah. we've been talking about, that's probably a good thing. That's a good thing. And I think, and I think you know, this can be applied to so many things, and, which is what I love about it, and that's why coffee is just just one little thing mm. that I'm focusing on because yeah well but it, Pretty big it it's a good conversation starter as well right I can ha I can now go to people and they say what do you do you know meet someone at a bar or on the street and I can say sustainable coffee and they go coffee what does that mean da, da, da. and that, that's opened up the conversation you know I can then have a conversation with them about so many different things so thinking about things like the rainforest certification, rainforest alliance certification, and similar kinds of schemes, in Australia, one of the things I like about our food regulations is that we have a label on the back of the product that says what it contains. You know, its mm -hmm. ingredients, the ratio, the the recommended daily intake. Take that for what it's worth. Uh -huh. But yeah, have you considered 
mandatory mandatory labeling for mm -hmm. environmental impacts mm -hmm. and how would that what would that look like even yeah yeah this is definitely something that other people are working on um it i think i'm very intrigued by the idea so there's a guy i met um who's doing his phd at the university of oxford as well basically on that on part of his stuff is like coming up with this mandatory environmental logo to help people consumers everyone mm -hmm. easily very simply see the impact that this music bar versus that music bar this packet of bread versus that packet of bread this steak that steak have because it can be the same it could be you know exact same product same you know here's two kilo, one kilogram bags of coffee here's yeah. two beef steaks they can have hugely different environmental impacts Here's yeah they could two. be on either end of that spectrum of coffee yeah. you're talking yeah. about yeah and it, and it can be for anything so but having these myriad of different schemes like rainforest yeah. like fair trade blah it's blah blah it is impossible and I think what most people do and I am one of them is just assume it's got a logo that's better than nothing yeah when in reality they have perhaps have very different impacts on the ground and that is not even uniform within those certification schemes so having a mandatory uniform sort of food labeling for environmental but also economic and social mm. sustainability i think would be interesting are you aware of any economies trying to implement such a thing no but it has it's not that it hasn't been done it's been done in other situations so it's been done for say energy rating yeah. of appliances here yeah, in Australia, here in Australia. Yeah. Exactly. or we've now got the recent logos on food for Australia that like you know you've got like a little Australian made triangle kangaroo mm -hmm. and that little bar that goes what percentage of the mm -hmm. ingredients were grown here in Australia so it's been achieved for those impressive. aspects there's pre there's precedent in different aspects and different industries yeah are you familiar with the term greenwashing <laughs> yeah that definitely comes up a lot when i start talking to people I yeah. <laughs> i i'm not a cynic so uh, but I, I but, it, be. <laughs> but it is a legitimate concern oh, yeah, for that sure. if if marketing your product as being sustainable becomes a genuine you know, marketing tool that people can use to you know encourage people to make these consumer choices what we're talking about the opportunity to exploit the system now presents itself. So I'm wondering, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on greenwashing? Maybe even describe what greenwashing is. Okay, so I guess in my quick summary, greenwashing is like a company saying something is environmentally friendly or sustainable when it's actually not. Mm. And it's just using that as a way to sell more products and make more money. It might not even be straight out lying. It might just be... Overselling. Overselling. You know, this is... And... You know, everyone has to do that. You know, we here as well, like I was saying before, you, you, we need to make a living. And, you know, with, with every tool, it can be used well and it can be used badly. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can use a drill to build a house and you can use a drill to do unseemly things to people. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm... Maybe I'm just going to invent a term. I'm, I'm conservation agnostic <laughs> in the sense that it doesn't really matter to me why someone chooses to do something for a conservation benefit, or even if they are thinking of it as conservation benefit. If it has that end yeah. result, fantastic. If someone buys a product because they 
it's the mate of the mate's company that does that. Yeah. And that's the only reason. Or they think it tastes great. And that's the only reason they're buying it. I know for a fact there are a lot of people that buy Patagonia clothing because... <laughs> like the jacket I'm wearing. Yeah. <laughs> but like without any thought as to <clears throat> Patagonia creating national parks in South America or anything like that. That's, a, that's not even a, not even half uh-huh. thought. They don't even know. But there's a particular branding that comes along with... So yeah, it doesn't matter why they chose Patagonia. The fact that they did yeah. is a better choice than yeah. choosing some mass-produced... You know, the textile industry yeah. is a whole other thing that we don't yeah. need to do. I think, I think this is a good little point, right? So, and a good summary point for the whole thing. So, where I think this conservation marketing, or just conservation in that broad um, interdisciplinary sense, the is cake. working, that the cake, the people that bring those ingredients together well, aren't then selling the cake as an environmentally friendly, sustainable cake. Yeah. They're selling it as this is a good cake. You want to eat this cake. Conservation by subterfuge. <laughs> and that's and that's <laughs> and that and that works. Patagonia does some cool things. Shout out Patagonia. Uh, yeah, I'm not afraid to shout out I shout Starbucks has some really good certification for verification for environmentally, socially, economically responsible coffee, probably one of the best in the industry. But do they sell it as that? Mm. Not, not really. Cool. So, one more thing before we before we wrap up. Yeah. I was one of the things that I think about when communicating science, engaging people in science, is how do we avoid preaching to the choir? How do we target demographics that we we don't need to be targeting people who are already <laughs> conservation minded, because they're the ones that are likely to make these decisions in the first place? How do we reach? new target audiences that we want to encourage to make better informed conservation-based decisions yeah i think what what you're talking about here is audience segmentation and it's probably a hot topic in this social marketing conservation marketing realm but i think it's something that was put to bed literally probably back in the 1850s in the marketing world like it's like yes we need to segment the audience that is a given do you say do you segment or do you just do like general messages to everyone? I think it's a catch twenty two. You've got to do a bit of both, no matter what. Yes, you need to understand the segments of the audience that you're targeting to and what types of messages they are going to react to. Mm-hmm. Knowing think, your audience. Yeah, but there's also that there that there are different audiences. Yeah. And so you can have some messages that are targeted towards those people already doing well, just to support them. It's motivation, right? Good job, you're doing well. Keep doing it. Keep it up. And then there's people on the fence that are like, they might not be doing that action yet simply because they didn't know they could be doing better. And as soon as you just say, hey, here's a thing that's better, they'll, they'll switch. It's boom, done, easy, no worries. Yeah. And, it's, and then you keep going a bit further away. There's the people that need a bit more pushing. You really need to, you know, you need to push them. It's going to take some time. They're the people that are, haven't quit smoking yet mm-hmm. in the conservation sense, not literally the same people. And then there's the people of the laggards that have just really, we shouldn't really be putting attention to them right now. Right. They're, they're, they're unreachable. They're unreachable at this stage. Yeah. But they will come with time as, as, as the, you know, we are, we are sheep in general as people. You like to go with the crowd. Mm. So if the crowd starts moving in this conservation direction, people will follow. But how do you, how do you start that way of going? So we need multiple messages for Multiple messages for different people as well as general messages. It's a mix. 
So one of the things that you and I both have in common, um, and it seems to be exceedingly rare, is that we're both optimists. We both <laughs> believe that we have the technological solutions and it's just a matter of will and hard work and we can actually achieve some of these outcomes. And I would like to end on something I was thinking about last night, that my wife and I were shopping in a supermarket and we both had somewhat of a meltdown when it came to how much plastic was in use. And sometimes, sometimes the, the depth and complexity of the problems we face seem insurmountable. But I would just like to remind everyone that at one point in time, the entire global economy ran on slave labor. Yeah. And that we managed to not only address that problem and end the institution of slavery, but it actually issued in a new era of prosperity for human civilization. Mm. And I believe that we are on a similar cusp, that if we continue to work hard, this is a, a similar outcome can be reached with new technologies, new opportunities. You know, sustainable agriculture is a whole new industry that can develop and really benefit people in the underdeveloped world. Mm. Things, things may look bad, but they're better. And I think... Better sustainability isn't achieved at once and it's not an end goal we just we just need to keep making those little baby steps and then we'll be more sustainable so Bowie social media presence how can people find out more about your work follow you on Instagram or Twitter yeah, yeah. what have you got uh, I've got I've got the the trifecta of Instagram Facebook and Twitter all under Bo Scovery so that's B-O-W-S-C-O-V-E-R-Y and if people are interested in what we've been talking about today and they think that this might be an interesting area for their masters or their honours, what's the name of your lab and how can people get in contact with them? Uh, so you can find me on those social media. That would be a good first step. Otherwise, it's the Centre for Applied Conservation Science. Here at the University of Adelaide. Here at the University of Adelaide. Cool. So yeah. thanks for coming on. No worries. Thanks Cheers. for having me. All right. <laughs> to today's podcast. This podcast was hosted by me, Bradley Bianco, and produced with my dedicated team, Christopher Jolly, Mile Tarrant, Adam Toombs, and music by Darcy Whitaker. If you'd like to support the production of this show, please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.